Hello, welcome to the Dentist Profit Playbook Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Harry Singh, growing, helping you grow your face aesthetics business. I've got a celebrity on this um, podcast episode, the one and only Dr. Ranch. Welcome, Dr. Ranch. <laughs> uh, it's weird you describing me as that. I don't know. I said to my kids, I said, I'm on a podcast with Dr. Ranch. They go, no, Ranch Mumbaji, but no, I'm a bit. Exactly. <laughs> Okay, I'll let you. I'll let you off this time. But nice to be here. Thank you, man. Um, I know you're a busy man. Um, so we we'll start off with talking about aesthetics. So, do you think medical professionals should be offering aesthetic treatments? Do I think they should be? Um, well, I suppose <laughs> if I, if I didn't think they did, it's probably not much point. You and I chatting. Yeah. Um, yeah I, actually, um, let me sort of. Ch- turn that sort of phrase slightly i think only medical practitioners should be um offering aesthetic treatments and by medical practitioners i mean people like doctors dentists and nurse practitioners and nurse prescribers and people who are adequately qualified what i don't agree with is people who are not adequately qualified offering services particularly i think it's more so an issue with things like fillers which yeah. is a less regulated, um, uh, I suppose, substance and industry, uh, which could potentially have even bigger complications than things like botulinum toxin does. But um, any sort of medical aesthetic service, I think, should be provided by an adequately trained person. And it's not just trained in the administration of yeah. the procedure, but it's the big, it, the more important yeah. bit is, and I say to people, is if there's a complication, can your practitioner deal with it? adequately and that's the important bit yeah as i said they could train a monkey to get and probably ai in a few years time to get those <laughs> as you say it's a complication but yeah. also going step back is a consultation because i know you're a big advocate of mental health body disorder yes. How yes. Do, you think, do you think we are adequately trained to assess body dysmorphic disorder and is there referable pathways that are adequate that anyone knows about mm. I don't think um, people who currently offer aesthetic services are adequately trained in picking up things like BDD. So for those of you who don't know, uh, body dysmorphic disorder is a mental health issue um, where a person's and individual's obsession about certain parts of their appearance get in the way of their ability to live normally. And they may obsess over certain things. They may um, uh, change their behaviours. They may avoid avoid looking in mirrors they may have excessive procedures and things done to try and correct their appearance they may even go as far as uh, things like skin picking and other anxiety and obsessive and yeah. compulsive behaviors and it can lead to um, you know even more serious things than that like suicidal thoughts and even actions so it's a it's a it's an important condition for i think practitioners to be aware of um amongst the people who are trained to offer aesthetic services i don't think there is enough awareness and training when it comes to those sorts of issues and remember since the pandemic we know that the prevalence of mental health difficulties has gone up generally you know levels of anxiety have gone up people's i i wouldn't be surprised with you know the fallout from the pandemic and the increasing hold of things like social media that people are thinking about their appearance a lot more than they used to and not all of it is healthy so i think it's even more important now for practitioners to be properly aware and trained a bit and um i'm not a mental health professional as such i'm a medical doctor and part of my job is to 
be able to pick up on potential mental health difficulties like body dysmorphic disorder and refer in the right direction. So there's lots of, if you suspect someone's showing signs um, and you can just go online, go to the NHS website or, uh, you know, things like uh, there's various charities out there like Mind and Anxiety UK, OCD UK, which will have information on things to look out for. If you suspect that someone is suffering from it, then they need to be signposted to the relevant healthcare professional. Usually the first port of call is their GP and their GP will assess and, um, you know, uh, start them on the appropriate treatment. But your job then as an aesthetic practitioner is to decide whether it's appropriate for you to treat them. And if you're suspecting seriously things like BDD, body dysmorphic disorder, uh, you've got to have that conversation about whether any treatment is actually appropriate. <clears throat> and that's what I think the, my the, speaking to delegates and my colleagues is they have trouble what to say without offending mm. the patient. Do you have any tips for our listeners? Yeah. So for me, I would say the first thing you've got to make clear before you've even had any conversation about, you know, potentially picking up disorders and things like that, you've got to make clear to your client or your patient, however you want to refer to them, is that um, the treatments that you are offering are not essential treatments. These are modifying treatments. These are some people may consider them as luxuries, actually, these days, but they are not life saving treatments, but they are medical treatments and as such, as a medical practitioner, you have a responsibility legally, you have to, because it's not just about what you think is appropriate, not appropriate. Legally, your responsibility is to offer treatments that that per person should be having. So if there's anything that you think may not be in their best interest, then you will voice it. And I will say so. And that is not a personal thing. That is a requirement of all healthcare practitioners. And that is good practice. So if there's something that I think you don't need I will tell you and you know what and I and, and if I'm if there's anyone that I think you should go and speak to I will let you know and I, I I would say that as a general for every single patient as part of your consultation process then when you get into the nitty-gritty of your consultation when you start asking you know the kind of things they're looking for what is worrying them you may then start to get a sense hang on a minute their concerns or their worries are out of proportion or there's certain red flags here that I'm worried about. You can explore those in a bit more detail. And then if you are concerned, say, look, I'm a bit concerned about X, Y, and Z. I'm not sure this is the best treatment for you. And I don't think it's going to give you the effect that you desire. And I'm afraid I will not be able to offer you this treatment. I think you should go and speak to so-and-so. And that could be another healthcare practitioner. That could be uh, a service, a mental health service. And um, most times it will be, you know, I think you should go and speak to your GP about this because there are certain things that are worrying me. And I'm sorry, I am not able to offer you the treatments you're looking for. I think that's if you frame it in a sense that you are doing it from a well-being and safeguarding perspective, you are thinking about your patient's best interest and you make it clear that it's not going to give them what they want, then I think most patients and clients will realise, hang on a second, there is no point me being here for that. And they may decide not to go on and, you know, take your advice, but you as a healthcare practitioner have fulfilled your responsibility to, to them. And if you are seriously concerned, then, and, and if you think someone is at risk to themselves or somebody else, then actually you know, you should probably break confidentiality at that point and speak to their GP themselves. Right. 
uh, speak to their GP yourself. If you are sufficiently concerned, then, you know, there is guidance that says you can do that because you are acting in their best interest. And that's why the whole point is about these things need to be done by people who are adequately trained and able to deal with this sort of thing. Because it's not just about the technique of administering injections. A lot of people can do that. That's not the hard bit. The hard bit is being able to do a proper consultation, um, being able to recognise when it may or may not be appropriate and also dealing with those complications that we talked about earlier. Excellent advice. I'm going to be re-watching re that, re-listing, making my own templates there. <laughs> and you're right in terms of what I found in my 20 years experience, the ones that you said no to, they actually appreciate it and they're being mm. my best referrals because they said, look, Dr. Harvey is not going to do it just for the money. He's going to tell you what's the best for yes. you. Yes. Long absolutely i think it it also adds credibility to you because when you when you are doing face-to-face -face selling of medical services like this there is that sort of concern that there will and there, it's not just a concern there are people out there who will offer treatments um because you, they are being paid for them and purely for that reason and i think that if you are able to tell somebody look you know i'm going to be very honest with you and if you don't need something, I am going to say that to you and I will not be treating you. If that is the case, I will not be able to offer you treatment. And I think that actually, um, I think it creates trust between yourself and your patient or client. And it creates a better, uh, you know, practitioner patient relationship. And I, and, and, and I certainly find that people um, find that really helpful and really reassuring. Yeah. Um, whereas sadly, I'm, I'm, Unfortunately, there are people out there that don't do that. Yeah. And I found early in my career when, obviously, when you're, you're excited, you want to help everyone, you make, and you go against your gut feeling. And then those yeah. patients are your biggest stressors. They next yes. you, and they in, and you see their name on your weight, on your patient list, <clears> etc. <throat> so it's having That's that. Gut. There, yeah. Um, Question about you and celebrities and the media. How much do you think media plays in terms of what, especially young girls, portray themselves as or what mm. they want? Um, interesting segue into media. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we live in an increasingly connected society where um, people on the whole, especially young people, are exposed to imagery of certain kinds very uh perfectionist imagery um a lot of uh you know enhanced and altered appearances especially on social media and not all of it is healthy we know that you know countless reports have shown that social media isn't a completely safe place especially for young people um and that influences uh people's i think thoughts and feelings about themselves and each other and that's why we have seen the social media effect in the aesthetic industry of people seeking more treatments because they want to look a certain way, whether that's people who want to go to the gym more because they want to get buff and look like someone from Love Island or whether they want to go to an aesthetic practitioner and have their lips enhanced because they've seen it on something like Love Island or they've seen it on Instagram. Increasingly, I think TikTok, uh, which is becoming a, a, a more popular platform. Um, these are worrying trends because often when people see things on social media, they don't see it in context. They don't see that you will see. A, I always remind young people that social media is a filtered viewpoint on life. It's not real life. It's life with a filter applied to it. Um, 
anything what you need may not be what actually exists and you don't see what goes on behind there to achieve that sort of appearance um so i certainly think we've seen that effect and we're going to see more and more of that effect um i personally you know from this from a practitioner's perspective yes we have a responsibility to be um aware that that is happening um and therefore, you may get people who've actually, you know, don't need aesthetic treatments. They actually need to speak to a therapist um, uh, and you need to be on the lookout for that. But I think social media companies need to start taking a bit more responsibility, particularly when it comes to young people, particularly um, young girls. I think they need to start taking more responsibility about the effect their platform is having on their well-being, particularly mental well-being. And I say in my talks, Facebook is fake book. Um, yeah. Every dentist on Facebook's done 200 press-ups before six o'clock, 10 implant cases, perfect life, <laughs> made a smoothie, and et cetera. Mm. So, exactly. You know, it's the best version of themselves. Exactly. And often, it, you know, it's not a real version. It really isn't. And and we have to, we have a, as a society, I think we have to remind young people that that's the case. We're going to have one last serious question because it sounds all doom and gloom. <laughs> <laughs> That's important stuff. Yeah, we've got definitely important stuff. So complications and draining NSS resources, because especially mm. I know a lot of the non-medics don't know how, or complication, don't know how to deal with it else. And I've had it, yeah. patients I've heard, they go straight to A&E. Yeah. So how can, what's the answer or... Oh, gosh, what's the answer? So firstly, I don't, like I said, uh, these procedures should only be offered by people who are qualified. And by qualified, I mean qualified to administer and qualified to deal with consequences and complications. Um, A&E seems to be the fallback for a lot of things, unfortunately. And at the moment, it, it, is, the, it is even more of a fallback, but it's even more of a struggle to get help because we are seeing... Uh, huge demand across the board and people trying to access you know urgent care and emergency care and it's unfortunate if this industry adds to that you know there are certain instances where a treatment has been done appropriately and a complication happens and you know there are those times when it's just in, unfortunately an unpredictable or even a predictable complication happens but there's nothing you could have done to mitigate for that it happens there are going to be a proportion of that and for those people you know A&E may be the appropriate place for them to go that's absolutely fine it's just I don't think people should be using A&E as their backup option if a complication happens I don't think that's appropriate and especially at this time when the pressures are so great we have a responsibility as anyone out there who's an aesthetic practitioner has a responsibility of not adding to that pressure um, and being getting yourself trained up to make sure that you can deal with those complications because a lot of them can be dealt with by the practitioner there will be those serious ones that have to go to hospital you know I and I always tell people that actually if you're going to have one of these procedures have the back in have the complication rate is low relatively speaking but you've got to remember this is a medical procedure and as with any medical treatment or procedure, you've got to have that thought in the back of your mind. I could be that one in 10,000, 100,000 that has a bad reaction, that has a bad complication. And therefore, you may have to go to a &E for that. You've got to have that. You've got to have that in the back of your mind. I mean, the other problem is a lot of these are solo practitioners that work by themselves. They haven't got that support network. Support yeah. Team, and that could be another way to say, yeah, like, 
as we as dentists, we have an emergency rotor within our own county, then something with aesthetics could work quite well. Yeah, yeah, that I mean, something like that would actually be quite good, providing it's you know provided by adequately and properly trained people, which I'm assuming it would do for something like that. Um, it's possibly a good idea, given that these sorts of procedures are becoming more commonplace. It may be something worth looking into, like an uh, you know, like a cooperative service that deals with complications of these things. But you know, it's going to take time and effort to set something. I, I, I've not heard of any existing like that already, but it's probably a good idea. There's a chance for you, Harry. There's something else for you to do. <laughs> I've lost one hour yesterday with the clock's going full. <laughs> <laughs> no, let's have a bit of fun um you mentioned love island would that be a program you would go to oh my gosh you're asking me this <laughs> um no it wouldn't be for several reasons um firstly i don't think love island shows uh positive and good examples to young people of lots of things i don't think it shows uh positive examples of appearance uh, or, or healthy or realistic examples of appearance and I don't think it always shows positive behaviours either and I think that given that the audience for like Love Island and things like that the show in themselves are actually quite interesting quite good fun and I get that it's television it's entertainment but what you've got to remember and they've increasingly seen and realised is that these things come with a degree of responsibility to the contestants and to your audience and in a world where we are seeing increasing mental health difficulties, particularly with relation to appearance, we have a responsibility to make sure what we're putting on screen is, is responsible and properly thought out. So that's why I think Love Island could do better in those situations. I think that, um, you know, it's, it's sad when you see, and we do see this, unfortunately, in young people, um, kids that want to grow up, you know, it used to be that they wanted to grow up to be teachers and astronauts and lawyers and doctors and dentists. <laughs> and then they wanted to grow up to be footballers and, you know, pop stars and stuff like that. And now they want to grow up to be on Love Island. And, and that's their career aspiration to be on Love Island. That to me is worrying. <laughs> um, and I think that's something that we should address. And possibly young people will address themselves and say, we realise that this is nonsense and we're not going to partake in it anymore. Yeah, I don't, I don't think they realise how much influence they have. Like, my daughter's 15 and she loves the programme and stuff and all that age group are watching it. Yeah. well, And it's not really for them. It's for grown-ups <laughs> who can tell the difference between, you know, who've got life experience and you know how to mitigate for all of that stuff. But I think it's worrying. I think there needs to be more responsibility on screen. I, th I think they need to cast more realistic people. They need to, you know, be mindful of behaviours on screen and what they edit into the show. But obviously it's an entertainment show. But maybe they do need to put warnings in as well. Maybe that's what they need to start doing. So we won't see you on that show then. We'll you will not see that. me on Love Island unless there are significant changes on several fronts. <laughs> so talking about TV, how did you start in TV? Because you've been around um, oh, on TV. Gosh, yeah, I've been around. Uh, I've probably been working in telly for about 10 years now. Um, People don't realise that long. <laughs> it, feels, it doesn't feel that long, but it has been. Um, I, I got into television by accident. It was purely by chance. I didn't leave university thinking I wanted to be on telly. I um, left university, went into hospital medicines, training as a, a, a paediatric doctor. I'd been doing it for about five years full time. And I guess I needed a hobby. I needed an outlet. 
I needed, I was getting bogged down in the day-to-day clinical shift work um, and thinking, I just need to do something a bit more creative, a bit more out of the box. Um, and and a, a chance encounter came up with someone at the BBC. They were looking for a young people's doctor. And I thought, do you know what? I can use my my sort of daytime experience and my day job and take it into a totally different area and be a bit more creative with it. And it's all health promotion and kind of, you know, public health stuff. So um, I got involved with the BBC, purely voluntary, doing it for fun as a hobby. And then over time, it just kind of grew. Like my name got passed around. People asked me to start doing more. They asked, and still I was, you know, doing my clinical job full time then. And people were saying, oh, you should, you know, audition for presenting stuff and maybe go in and, you know, think about doing X, Y, and Z, uh, get yourself an agent, blah, 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 blah. And I just kind of thought, oh my gosh, this is turning into something bigger than I ever envisaged it to be. It started off as a hobby. And so I did more and more of it. It kind of gained momentum. And then um, eventually when it really sort of, I suppose, became a second job and I started to get paid for it and stuff, I went part-time clinically. So I did my NHS, I do my NHS job part-time and then I do media part-time as it were, or the rest of the time. And actually, even though now I work more hours in totality than I ever have done, I get so much more job satisfaction and I get so much more out of each each job purely because one, I get variety. I get to do different jobs in different environments and, and it's a completely different experience. When I go to each of those roles, I go and I'm not absolutely shattered because I've been doing it for the last, you know, 10 days or whatever. So when I'm on shift, you get more out of me in hospital. When I go to a studio, it's something different and I get to, you know, you get more energy for it um it's still important to have downtime obviously but i i've i get much more job satisfaction now than i ever have done perfect and i I remember you saying me a couple of times that people ask you are you a real doctor (laughs) (laughs) still get that i still get that all the time no matter how much (laughs) i do uh it would be pretty bad if i wasn't a real doctor and i was giving advice (laughs) on screen to be honest um, it's because I've done so many, I guess, different kinds of things. But yeah, I, I'm very much still a doctor. I'm a practicing NHS consultant in London. I, I work part time. I tend to work weekends, um, but I'm very much still practicing and I'm not about to give it up anytime soon. Perfect. What was one of the best advice you got about appearing on TV? Best advice about appearing on TV? Don't give up the day job was the best advice I got. Because, and that the point about that was, a lot of people say to me, would you give up being a doctor and just do telly? And I say, firstly, why? Because I've been a doctor for 20 years <laughs> and I went through six years of tough medical school to get there. Why would I then give all of that up <laughs> for something that has far less job security? Um, so I wouldn't. And then secondly, you know, my day job my clinical job my nhs job gives me credibility that's the reason i'm on screen regardless of the fact that i do a lot of fun non-medical stuff on screen as well and i'm really lucky to do that but my the reason everybody sort of knows me and and i suppose in some way listens and trusts me listens to and trusts me is because of my day job is because i bring that bring that credibility i've got my finger on the pulse as it were i know what's happening on the ground 
um, I have direct experience of that. And therefore I can talk about it with a bit more authority. Like when I'm on screen talking about health related matters, it's because that's my job and that's what I do. And that's what I would advise anybody who's thinking of getting into any other kind of broadcasting, as it were, whether it's online, on radio, um, on screen, whatever it might be. Um, if you're doing it in a medical capacity, yeah. make sure you've got that credibility to back you up. You've got to have experience, firstly, so you can't just do it straight out of med school, although some people think you can. And secondly, um, maintaining that sort of you know job and role just is only going to add to your credibility because you've got to think, why would somebody book me? Why would someone listen to me? Why would a producer want to book me? And why would the public want to listen to me? What I'm... And, and, you know, that's I, th I think that kind of goes without saying, really. But, yeah, best advice was don't give up the day job. And similar, not to your scale, but obviously I want to face with Cetics Training Academy, but I'm still doing yeah. the work day in, day out because, yeah. as you said, I want to keep up my skills, keep the latest procedures, because people mm. will be asking you, okay, what's coming now? What's new? What yeah. can I do for you? Um, you've just launched a new book, or newish book, uh, the, oh gosh yeah um so i've got a new book coming out it's just been announced um it's uh out in may 2023 uh so it well if you're listening to this we're in march now so it's gonna be in a couple of months um so it's my latest book i've got a few of them as you have barry <laughs> as you have um so my latest book is called how to be a boy and do it your own way so because um, I work with children and young people, that's my job. And uh, a lot of stuff I do on screen is related to that as well. And that's how people know me. Um, I've During the pandemic, I got into writing books. Um, I got approached by a publisher to write some books for children, essentially. So I've done some picture books for little ones. And I've done some sort of more grown-up books for sort of teenage-ish, you know, anywhere from sort of seven up to 14 um, age group and I've got various books there I've got a growing up guide for boys I've got a um, brain learning education a mental health guide for kids and this latest one is all about what it means to be a boy in today's world um, <clears throat> young men and boys these days are bombarded with loads of uh, messages about how they should be how they are supposed to be what they're supposed to be into how they're supposed to look what they're supposed to wear what they're supposed to like um a lot of it is online on social media lots of the messages that they're getting are not healthy i would say um particularly with the likes of you know the andrew tates of the world um who are very popular on social media especially amongst young boys and i don't think he gives a very good message out at all and i know many people agree with that um so it's kind of turning that upside down and showing boys and young men that they can be their best selves, no matter who they are or what they like or um, how they feel or how they identify. Everyone has the capability and ability to be amazing. And it's about discovering who you are, celebrating that and actually learning about things like <clears throat> how to be a better friend how to be a better ally, how to respect others, how to show, um, how to be your best self, how to look after yourself and your mental health, um, how to just be a better person and to do it through kindness and compassion and all the things that um, we should be teaching boys and young men. Yeah. So it's about turning that toxic masculinity narrative 
upside down and creating a positive masculinity narrative. Um, that's the hope. <laughs> that's what I'm hoping people are going to get with this. And I'm hoping that, um, you know, boys and their parents and carers are going to find this really, really helpful and useful. And I want to remind them that they can be amazing no matter who they are. Yeah. Um, and they don't have to be any particular way. And that's what I found <laughs> I go to a lot of personal development business seminars is the hustle, the class. Yeah. And they're trying to portray this man is selfish, just act for himself. You've got to reach the top, don't care who you step on. And yeah. I see that, especially with the American guys coming over and they're preaching that kind of stuff. And It's that sort of competitive mental attitude, which actually in some ways is a good thing, a bit of that. Having that competitiveness and having that drive and passion and determination is actually quite good, um, provided it's in the right amount and used in the right way. But it's also to say that you don't have to do that to at the expense of other people if you want to be like that. And actually, you don't have to be like that at all. You can be successful in so many ways. There yeah. are so and we talk about leadership in the book as well. And there are different ways of being a leader. Um, you know, boys and men and men are often expected to show leadership qualities, but leadership is actually different things to different people. And actually doesn't have to be, you know, being a bully, for instance, which some people think leadership is. Um, and I've got some really great interviews and insights from um lots of famous friends gokwan's in there getting jones is in there lady phil's in there talking about racism and racial equality um i've got uh michael gunning who's an olympic swimmer he's a black ex-olympic swimmer talking about competitiveness and uh and and pushing yourself and and the importance of physical activity and things like that it's all in there there's loads of people and i've got really great role models as well actually from across the world people like barack obama um i've got south asian role models in there that's one thing i was really really keen to get more representation of i wanted everyone to be able to see a bit of themselves in the in this book somewhere no matter what their background is or no matter what their ability is i've tried to make it as inclusive as possible so that it appeals to as many boys as possible Excellent, excellent. And I heard a really good quote over the weekend. It's not, and it said, it's not how much money you make, it's how you make your money. Yes, exactly. And whether you're having a good time yeah. <laughs> doing it, like the whole point of living is to kind of enjoy your existence yeah. as well as achieving. And you know what? Sometimes having stuff isn't everything it's the process and what you do to get there and and how you're treating other people and how you're treating yourself um yeah all of these things i think sometimes these messages get lost don't yeah. they when people are focused on the goal you get you you lose the you lose the you know the attention to the graft and the other things that are important as well and they get disappointed when they do reach their goal because it's not what they expect exactly exactly and it's up to us i think as um, the grown-ups, the adults, the more sensible and experienced people, uh, mature people. To, to I mean, thank you with you. We're not that sensible. <laughs> well, well, you know, we're allowed to have fun occasionally, but it's, it is down to us to pass on the messages and things yeah. that we've learned, haven't we? Not just to each other, but to younger generations, because that's what we're here for: is to guide and nurture and um, and you know support and celebrate the next wave of talent that's coming through. The next wave of, you know, world leaders and, and business people and 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 scientists and teachers and, uh, and and athletes and everybody else, you know, 
remind kids that you know they have huge potential and there's so much that they can do but you know at least you've got to be a good person whilst you're doing it yeah and having kids is not what you say to them is what you do and they will always pick up what you're doing and copy (laughs) i'm watching your kids very closely harry (laughs) my niece and nephew i've been watching them very closely (laughs) although they're they're a nice bunch those two (laughs) Um, you appeared on strictly come dancing yeah Um, yeah I know talking to you, the physical um, exercise regime was quite not traumatic, but really hard work. <laughs> yeah. so, let's say you were doing, um, I know some of the other people had more time to rehearse and practice. So mm. let's say while you were doing it, what was the typical day in preparation for Strictly? Oh, gosh. So I did Strictly back in 2018, which is pre-pandemic. It feels like a world away right now. The world was a different place. But I think a lot of people don't realise is that Strictly is a very intense physical and mental challenge. You've got, remember, um, you've got Monday to Thursday to learn a brand new routine and dance and style, which you may never have done before. And you've got people of different dance abilities, remember, in there. You're learning a brand new thing. During that Monday to Thursday, you are filming behind the scenes stuff you are um filming for other shows to promote whatever you're doing you are attending events and things because part of it is a popularity thing you've got to be out there um you are training every single day uh <laughs> i was also doing my hospital job at the same time <laughs> um uh and then on friday you go in and you're doing rehearsals all day in fittings costume fittings and stuff like that and then saturday Again, it's dress rehearsal and then you do the show. And then Sunday's your day off to recover from everything and do your house admin. So laundry and all the other kind of stuff that you put off. And then Monday, you're back into it if you're lucky enough. So a typical day for me was getting up, potentially going into the studio to train from about nine o'clock in the morning, training till about three, four, five o'clock, potentially. Um, And you know you're you're filming during that time as well and then in the evening you might go and film it takes two or something or you might go to an event or sometimes I'd then go and do a night my night shift um and there were days when I did a night shift like I'd start at eight o'clock in the evening finish at eight nine o'clock in the morning and then I'd go and do six hours of dance training um it was it was grueling and actually on top of that you've got to do social social media around it as well so that was the other thing. You've got to be on top of your social media because you've got to, you're trying to get votes essentially from people, um, and because everyone else was doing it, like you've got to do it, otherwise you're going to be at a disadvantage. So it was full on, and I only I only got to halfway, and I was exhausted. It's the people that got to the end, um, you know, they were complete shells of themselves <laughs> by the end of it. They loved it. Don't get me wrong. But they were absolutely shattered by the end, and I'm not surprised. Um, have you continued dancing after that? Oh, interesting. Yeah, I have. I have. I still have. Um, I still have dance lessons with a professional. So I am. Um, I'm not made for ballroom dancing. I've realised I'm a Latin dancer. Um, so I have Latin dancing lessons with a professional coach. I, I, they've been a bit sporadic. You know, it all went a bit weird during the pandemic. Um, but since and and life gets in the way and various projects get in the way, but I need to get back into it now. But um, yeah, I, I love it. It's now my form of exercise in a way. So I started 
Zumba classes after the pandemic um, as, as a form of exercise. I started them before as well. Um, spin classes, anything to music, that's my go-to form of exercise. So it's kind of become a way for me to stay fit. And that's really important. Perfect. Um, what's the most embarrassing thing that's happened on TV to you? Or have you done the most embarrassing thing that's happened on TV to me? Uh, Any big bloopers? Um, not really. No, I don't. I touch wood. <laughs> I'm thinking, has anything really embarrassing happened to me? No, I don't think it has. Um, no spit trousers. No. no, nothing like that. That's happened to me at a corporate thing, though. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, I was hosting, uh, presenting a, a, a night at the opera for um, for the, it was, I think it was a Birmingham Royal Ballet. Yeah. Um, they were doing a, 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 a live performance in a, in a theatre and I was hosting one of the days and I realised at the end of it that I did the entire thing with my flies open. <laughs> That's the, and ever since then, before I go on any stage, you know, you you, you check your, your tie's straight, your microphone's on, you've got your notes, check your flies. <laughs> <laughs> Laces and flies. <laughs> okay, perfect. Thank you. Nearly wrapping up, a couple of um, last questions. What's the strangest request you've had from a fan? <laughs> I've had a fan who's tattooed their autograph, on oh, my autograph, God. on their ankle. So I've seen <laughs> that. That That wasn't a request. That was more of a... Uh, demonstration. They didn't do it there and then, but they've had my signature tattooed on their ankle. I thought that was pretty extreme. Um, uh, what else has happened? Uh, no, no, nothing too weird. No one throwing uh, pants at you, underwear? No, 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 nothing like that. Uh, oh, someone's asked me to tickle their feet. <laughs> God, and Bennett. <laughs> there's some other stuff that people have asked that i can't say on a podcast <laughs> but the, the 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 requests go all the way from like can you look at this rash and i'm like no i'm in a supermarket yeah. <laughs> trying to do my grocery shop yeah. right through to uh, you know can you tickle my feet which was a bit odd i'm not gonna lie <laughs> to some more stuff that's a little bit more explicit which i won't say on here <laughs> Episode two. I was... didn't do it, by the way. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. <laughs> Sounds like Shaggy. It wasn't me. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely wasn't. Uh, um, you recently won, which I didn't know you could cook, a cooking programme on TV. Yes. Gosh. And yeah. then, are you doing a lot more cooking yourself? Or have you always been a um, keen cook? I love that you say that I didn't know you could cook. Because I couldn't really, to be honest. I didn't really do it. Like I, I like, don't get me wrong, I love food. I love different types of food. I love, you know, eating, you know, different cuisines and going out and stuff like that. It's great. Um, I do like, I did like cooking, but I just never had the time yeah. and all the energy and inclinations. So, and also because I live by myself, there's no, you don't have that incentive to cook because cooking is a social activity. You want to do it for other people. So often I'm a grab and go kind of person, whether I'm at work or whether I'm at home, um, rustle something up really quickly but I want it, I've always wanted to learn how to cook and I'm one of these people I will be a good student that's what my um, uh, mentor always said my chef mentor it was cooking with the stars that I won last year and um, that was on ITV 
Um, so she said, you know what, you have to be a good student. And that was it. And I was like, that's one thing I can do is learn, write everything down, follow. And I can follow instructions. That's why I'm so good at IKEA flat pack furniture. Give me a set of instructions and I will follow them to the T. And that's what cooking is to some extent is learning that. But then you, you, you've got to learn the art of it as well. You've got to learn what does and doesn't work and what does and doesn't go together. So I pushed myself during that show to learn very quickly. And I learned everything from cooking uh, paella to salmon on croute to uh, butter chicken, making my own samosas to a Thai green curry, um, like loads of really, really cool stuff. I even made a beef Wellington in one hour as, as a cook-off challenge. Um, I learned so much and I couldn't believe it when I won. So uh, I have cooked a little bit more since then. The, my problem still is time. <laughs> um but i have cooked for a few friends since then um uh, and it's gone down quite well so i'm i'm taking that as a positive i so, need to cook for family that's what so i need wait, to do yeah, I so need... You, <laughs> <laughs> if there's one meal you could cook what would it be what's your favorite one yeah what what's my if i could cook a meal what would it be oh i've probably already done it to be honest i love thai food yeah so um you know, massive fan of red and green curries. Um, and I've cooked a green curry and I've cooked a red curry before as well. Indian food, obviously, I love. Um, so I, I've made my own onion bhajis. I've made my own samosas. You know, that is a skill in itself. Um, what if I could cook something? What would I cook? Oh, that's a toughie. Um, I'd eat, a, mm, I don't, that's a, is there anything that I really, really... So I love sushi. Yeah. I'd love to go to a sushi making class. Okay. I'm a big fan of sushi. And like, yeah, that would be that would be fun. I think that would be interesting to learn about that. Yeah. So are you a better cook than your mum? No, I don't think anyone is. And I, don't think, um, I don't think anyone should say they are because they're about to get a clip around the ear. Or yeah. <laughs> yeah. chopped, yeah, sandal on the back I still need to cook for my parents, by the way. I know. I've cooked for my brother and sister-in-law, my brothers yeah. and sister-in-law, and they they were surprised, yeah. ge genuinely surprised. And I that was, was on the yeah. show. Yeah, in the in the finale of uh, Cooking with the Stars, I cooked for them, and they were genuinely impressed. Um, I think it's going to be a different uh, kettle of fish trying to cook for the folks, isn't it? That's it. One final <laughs> question: um, What's one purchase? you've regretted or never used one purchase i've regretted or never used are you oh, an impulse gosh. purchaser hey are you an impulse purchaser not really not really because i've never really been an impulse purchaser um because i tend to buy stuff that i need or want yeah. i've been a, a lot better at buying stuff i need because um especially you know since the pandemic focusing on what I actually need rather than what I want because I don't like buying stuff and not using it um and also you know it's it's just I, uh, environmentally it's not good financially it's not good we're all you know all of us are, are feeling a bit of a pinch at least from the cost of living crisis so we should be a bit more responsible um what have I what have I purchased that I I have regretted I'm not not really anything to be honest. I'm I'm a really careful purchaser. Like I don't, I I wouldn't. 
say that like I spend frivolously, but then when there are certain luxury items that I really like that I want, I will get them. So I got a, a really expensive coffee machine recently. Okay. Um so and and you know, I may not use it that often, but I appreciate it and it makes really good coffee and it's worth it. So I don't <laughs> I don't always go through the hassle of using it every day. Um, but that was expensive and that was because I, I wanted to uh, <laughs> and I wanted it and I need, well, I thought I needed it, but everyone needs good coffee, I think, these days. Definitely, definitely. <laughs> I'm thrown by it, man. So thank you for your time again. Um, you're definitely an inspiration. We look up to you in terms of what you achieved and still a very humble guy. When we go to your house, meet you, just treat you as a normal guy, go, don't treat me anything special. Um but no, thank you for your time and keep up the good work, writing the books, appearing on TV. I'm sure you've got some TV pins <laughs> tell us about that you're going to come up to us quite soon. Um, but no, thank you, Madge. No, thank you for having me. And I hope um, anyone that's listening found that useful or at least entertaining. Yeah, definitely.